Good morning. My name is Jen Ashby, and it's my privilege to look at the scriptures with you this morning. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been following this idea of the crimson thread all the way through scripture, beginning uh, in Genesis and leading us up to Palm Sunday, which is what we're going to talk about today. All through these scriptures, we see God's intent for people to live in a rich relationship with him and rich relationship with one another. But we also see people's choices over and over again to, sh- to sin uh, and the breaking of that relationship. And so God is intervening with this system of animal sacrifice to mend that broken relationship with him. All of this is leading us up to the ultimate and final sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. In the last couple of weeks, as I've reflected on the people who were present on Palm Sunday, this is the Sunday that Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem, I confess to you that I resonate with some of their disillusionment. This is some of my story. I grew up in a little town in Kansas, Rock Chalk Jayhawk, and uh, even as as a little girl, I loved to plan. And so I planned my wedding, I planned the house I was going to live in, I would draw the architectural drawings of it. I thought I was going to grow up and be an elementary school teacher, so I made lesson plans. I didn't just play school, I made lesson plans. (laughs) And I grew up in a family that went to church every Sunday. Most of the families that I knew went to church. And I never doubted the existence of God or the fact that God loved me. And then when I was about 12 years old, the Holy Spirit enabled me to connect some dots. And I came to understand that I was sinful, that my sin was interrupting my relationship with God. And that the solution for that was for me to place my faith in Jesus, who paid the price for my sin when he died on the cross. And so I did that at age 12. Then through my teenage years and my college years, I continued to learn what I basically thought was the Christian plan for life. And I didn't do it perfectly, but by and large, I worked that plan. And by and large, that plan worked for me until I was uh, 22. And when I turned 22, several things unfolded kind of simultaneously. I thought that I was going to get married to my college boyfriend. We were going to go on staff with a college ministry. Uh, But instead, uh, we broke up, and within about four months, he met and got engaged to someone else. My dad had cancer, and at this time, his cancer metastasized. He declined very quickly, and he died the weekend of my college graduation. Uh, As many of you know and have experienced, when you graduate from college, naturally, your friends from college scatter over the country, and that was my experience as well. And then within about two months, my mom uh, sold the home that that, uh, we had shared that I had grown up in, and she moved into Wichita. Now, at the time, when I was 22, I didn't think I was that young. But now that I'm pushing 45, (laughs) I look back and I think, wow, that's a lot to, to process at 22, And I thought, at the time, I thought I was supposed to process that and figure that out all by myself. And when I look back on that time, uh, I don't recall being angry. I honestly don't think I was angry. I was just very confused. I mean, guys, I worked the plan. 
I, I kind of felt like Alice in Wonderland. You know, when she falls down the rabbit hole and she lands in this like alternate world and she doesn't understand how things work there. That's how I felt. And when I look back now, I think that up to that time, unconsciously, I really thought that life was about this big, like about the size of a 13-inch screen, and that any challenge I could face would be about this big, and so any solution I would need would be about this big, and I really only needed God to be about this big. But through this combination of events, I began to realize life is not like a 13-inch screen. Life is like an IMAX theater with surround sound. Life is really about this big and it's about this complicated and I'm going to be facing some things that are much bigger than I ever dreamed. I'm going to need much bigger solutions. And the silver lining is that I began to get a glimpse of the fact that God was also much bigger than I previously thought and much more capable and up to something much more grand than I had ever understood. And I think that at least some of the people who were present on Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides into town, at least some of those people are somewhere on a journey a little bit like mine, making the shift from this to this. So let's look at this text together. You can use a Bible that you brought with you, or if you have the U version on your app, you can click events, and that'll get you there. I'm also going to put the text up on the screen. This is Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. Luke 19, 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another 
because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So this is an action-packed text. There's something here that looks like stealing. There's something here that looks like a riot. There's a sharp argument. This is also an emotionally charged text. We've got cheering and weeping and accusation. What is going on here? Let's think about the context. When Pastor Mark left off in our story of the Crimson Thread, there was this extensive animal sacrifice system set up at the temple in Jerusalem. If you missed that message, you'll want to go to derwoodalliance.org and listen to the message from last week. That first temple was built under the rule of Solomon, king of Israel, in the 10th century B.C., And in this picture, it is on the left. This temple stood and had animal sacrifices for over 400 years until it was destroyed in 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. And Babylon conquered Jerusalem and Judah, that whole area. And most of the Israelites were forced out of their land and into exile in Babylon. This created a huge problem for them on multiple levels. One of them is that they can't just offer animal sacrifices anywhere. It has to be at the temple in Jerusalem. But now they have no temple and they can't get to Jerusalem. They are forced to decentralize. And this is the period in history when the local synagogue uh, came into practice. After about 50 years of exile, Babylon is conquered by someone else, King Cyrus of Persia. And Cyrus decides that the Israelites can go back to their land. And so they begin doing that in 538 BC. And they rebuild the temple when they get back, which was dedicated in 515 BC. And they resume animal sacrifices. However, there is a problem. Whereas in the first temple, Solomon's temple, Scripture tells us clearly that the manifest presence of God came and resided in the temple. But in this second structure, that never really happens in the same kind of way. But they keep going with their animal sacrifices. They don't do it perfectly. It's complicated. It's messy. Now fast forward 500 years to 20 BC. Persia is done. The new imperial reign is Rome. And the Roman Senate has appointed Herod as king of the Jews, but not really a king. He's kind of a client king. Israel is a client nation. So he's very limited in his power. But Herod was known for his architectural endeavors. One of them was to largely, grandly expand the Temple Mount and the Temple Complex. And that's what you see in this picture on the right-hand side. Notice the difference in the size and the grandeur of it all. If you go to Jerusalem today and you go to what is known as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, it is a wall of the Temple Mount, not the Temple itself, but of the Temple Mount, the outside rectangle. That's what you can see today. It's during this second temple period when Jesus lived on earth and when we come to this text in Luke 19. So the Israelites are back in the land, but it's under Roman rule. They do have a king, but he's kind of a puppet of Rome. 
Uh, and he doesn't come from the Davidic kingly line, the family line. And he has some character issues. Like he tends to have people executed. Like his family members. And babies. Okay? It's a problem. Not good. They've rebuilt the temple... And they're practicing their animal sacrifices, but they don't have that manifest presence of God like their forefathers did. I think that for at least some of the people present on Palm Sunday, if you were to ask them, what are the biggest problems that you are facing? Their answer would have been along these lines. The biggest problems are Rome and Herod And religious practice at the temple is not what it used to be. As I've reflected on this over the last couple of weeks, I've been asking myself the question, or maybe God has been asking me the question, what are the biggest problems that I am facing? What are the biggest problems that I am facing? I would like for you to sit with that question. For just a few moments. If you're a writer, a jotter, you might want to pull out those notes in front of you and jot them down. Or you can just think. You can close your eyes if you want to. But I'm going to give you just a few moments of quiet to think about this question. What are the biggest problems that you are facing? I tend to think that how these Israelites saw their biggest problems informed the kinds of solutions that they were looking for, the kinds of solutions that they were hoping for. I tend to think that at least some of them saw their biggest problems as national and political and about religious practices. So I tend to think that they were looking for and hoping for and anticipating a national, political, religious practice kind of solution. And they had some prophecies from what we consider the Old Testament. They had some prophecies feeding that desire and that hope. The Old Testament is full of prophecies about this coming Messiah. Many, many prophecies that point to Jesus as that Messiah. But I want to share just a few that I think people might have been aware of at this point in the story. 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16. He will come from the family line of King David, and he will set all things right. Isaiah 7, 14. He will be born of a virgin. I cannot get away from the fact that this should have really narrowed the field, right? How many people fit that category? Okay, here's another one. Micah 5, 2. He will be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 35, 5 to 6, he will heal the blind, the deaf, the lame, and the mute. Even for people who didn't know these prophecies and were not familiar with them, they were still excited about the miracles. In our text uh, in Luke 19, 37, it says they're praising God for all the miracles they've seen Jesus do. In the chapter before this, in Luke 18, he's healed a blind man. And that's uh, not the, the only one, it's just the latest one. And then in Zechariah 9.9, particularly pertinent uh, to this passage, this Messiah will come riding on a donkey. 
I tend to think that how we see the problem informs how we see the solution. And then once we have a solution in mind, we're inclined to grasp onto things that look like that solution. Remember how some of these people saw their biggest problem. Now, here comes riding in their solution. The promised true king who they believe is going to throw off Rome and establish himself and restore the nation. And surely then, God's manifest presence will come back to the temple. They are grasping onto Jesus as the solution to their problems. Except it's not quite Jesus. This isn't the first time, and it won't be the last time, that the Israelites will grasp onto someone who looks like the solution that they have in mind. N.T. Wright, in his work, Simply Jesus, reminds us that 200 years before this, Judah the Hammer, great name, right? Judah the Hammer leads a three-year movement. He rides triumphantly into Jerusalem, and he cleanses the temple. Does this sound like anyone else you know? Sound like Jesus, right? The people latched onto Judah as the promised king. But the problem was that he didn't fulfill the rest of the prophecies. And things didn't uh, substantially change and stay changed for the better. A hundred years after Jesus, there's Judah. A hundred years after Jesus, and at that point, the temple had been destroyed again. There's another contender on the scene. His name was Simon the Star. Some reported that Simon the Star did miracles, that he was the promised king, that he would rebuild the temple once again. Uh, But the Romans soundly eliminated him. It's a gruesome story if you read it. And instead of being called Simon the Star or Son of the Star, he became known as Son of the Lie. He, too, was a false messiah. I tend to think that how we see our problems informs how we see the desired solutions and what we reach for as those solutions. I want you to think again about the biggest problems that you're facing right now. If you wrote them down, you can look them over or just bring them to mind again. You probably have some potential solutions in mind. Some things you're hoping for. When I did this exercise, thinking about the problems that I'm facing, I noticed a number of things about myself. First of all, I noticed that in contrast to first century Israelites who thought collectively, they thought about what are our problems as a people. I tend to think like an individualist. What are my problems or potentially the problems of the people who are closest to me? It's not a right or wrong thing. It's just a worldview thing, a difference thing. At different times in my life, I would describe the biggest problem that I'm facing as some kind of physical or emotional or spiritual health issue. At other times, the biggest problem has seemed a conflict or a relationship strain. At times, it's been about my financial future and supporting myself. At times, I'm concerned about my effectiveness in ministry. (laughs) At times, I'm 
concerned about things I see in the church, the big C church, not Derwood Alliance church, but the whole church. Uh, things along the lines of misrepresentation of God or, or of his word. And then if I'm really honest with you, friends, sometimes I just totally lose perspective. And the thing that I'm thinking about the most, the problem that's waking me up in the middle of the night is, will it snow on the day of the spring carnival? (laughs) (laughs) I noticed as I worked through this exercise, and I spent more time with it than we're spending this morning, but I noticed that what didn't come to mind What I'm apparently not super concerned about are vulnerable people that I don't know. People who are poor, oppressed, at risk in some way. And then when I noticed that I wasn't concerned about the vulnerable, then I became to be more concerned about myself and the posture of my own heart and the health of my own soul. I also noticed uh, that I tend to think of the problems as out there and the solutions that I'm interested in are mostly out there. Well, that's a problem and so God needs to move and those people need to respond and that needs to change. It took me, I'm really humbled to tell you, it took me a while to think about the problems in here and the solutions that I needed in here. Um, I'm talking about problems like my pervasive self-centeredness and entitlement and resentment and, ironically, at the same time, um, deep insecurity and cowardice. Now, maybe this wasn't like your experience at all. Maybe... When I posed the question, what are the biggest problems you're facing? Maybe you immediately just went to, you know what? The biggest problem is that in creation and in me, there's this fundamental rift of brokenness and sinfulness. But thanks be to God who has taken care of all of that in Jesus Christ. Maybe that was your experience. If so, my hat is off to you. I'm just being transparent about some of the things that went through my mind and went through my heart as I was working through that exercise. It's important for me to say that everything I've talked about so far, all of these things I'm putting in this big category of problems, that these things are real. And that God does care about, and he is concerned about, the things that we are concerned about. And I believe he wants to meet us in those things. I believe he wants to mend those things. I think that what the first century Israelites were concerned about, that that was legit. And I think what you and I are concerned about this morning is also legit. What I'm seeing is that I think, in addition, there is also something more. If you have in your home, in the floor or in the wall, a crack, a growing crack. You can identify that as a problem. And you can identify the solution as patching that crack. 
But there's a good chance that there is something more, that there's something deeper in the foundation that is causing that crack that must be addressed and resolved. What I'm saying this morning is that God cares about and he is involved in the visible fractures and cracks in our lives. And he wants to mend those. But he also knows that there is something more, there is something deeper that is fractured in the foundation. And he is ultimately about resolving and mending that as well. That foundational problem that I'm talking about, that rift, is sin and brokenness in the center of creation and in the center of every one of us. It's why God started the crimson thread in the first place, to get started on the solution. And it's why Jesus chose this particular day on the calendar to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. There is something very special and very intentional about this particular day. And Leonard Sweet describes that for us in his article, Parade of Lambs. On this day... Jews are streaming into the city of Jerusalem for the observance of Passover. Passover is a holiday commemorating an event Pastor Mark talked about last week. It's an event centuries before this when Israelites were in captivity. They were slaves in Egypt. And they were instructed, each household, to kill a perfect lamb and to spread the blood of that lamb over their doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over their homes and not kill anyone there. It's an incredible story in the book of Exodus. If you haven't read it recently, I encourage you to reread it. But by the time we come to this passage in Luke 19, every year Jews are gathering in Jerusalem to observe this holiday. And that observance still involves every household sacrificing a perfect lamb. That's a lot of lambs. It's a lot of lambs. And so villages around Jerusalem, like Bethlehem, were built around this economy of raising lambs and bringing them to Jerusalem throughout the year, but especially at Passover, for families to buy and sacrifice. Now, when it came to Passover time, The lambs were brought to Jerusalem and through the sheep gate. That's why it's called the sheep gate. On the first day after the last Sabbath before Passover. On the first day after the last Sabbath before Passover. In other words, on Palm Sunday. Families needed to buy their lambs and have their lambs in their possession for four days before Passover. And during those four days, they were to take care of those lambs and tend them and love them and pet them. I'm thinking of George, and I will love him and squeeze him and hold him. Um, So that they would get close to them. So that when it came time for them to sacrifice the lamb, it meant something. They had some sort of emotional investment in that animal. It wasn't like we buy the animal, we sacrifice the animal. This was built into the richness of the meaning of this observance. And so to work out all that timing, this was the day that the lambs are driven or led into Jerusalem. Can you picture this stream of people 
coming into Jerusalem. Men, women, children. Can you picture this parade of lambs on that same road coming from places like Bethlehem? And then picture Jesus coming in on that donkey. Jesus, also born in Bethlehem. Jesus, also perfect and without blemish. Jesus, also born to die. Jesus coming on just the right day into Jerusalem and through the gate. He is presenting himself as both the promised Messiah and the perfect lamb, the final sacrifice. Listen to these scriptures. John 1, 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Acts 8.32 He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, he did not open his mouth. 1 Corinthians 5.7 For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Revelation 5.12 In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Revelation 7, 9 to 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation seven seventeen, For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. You see, Jesus comes into Jerusalem not just for this, not just for the 13-inch screen, but also for this. Not only for the presenting problem, but also for the foundational problem. He comes as a climax to the crimson thread. He is the final sacrifice. His payment for our sin and all of its ramifications will not have to be done over and over again. His death and resurrection will forge a bridge across the rift between people and God. A bridge that is available to every single person who chooses to take it. And so the really bad news this morning is that our problem, our need is much, much greater than most of us realize most of the time. But the really deeply good news this morning is that Jesus provides a solution that is also much, much greater and grander than most of us realize most of the time. 
He's not a God of this size. He's a God of this size. And he doesn't love us just enough to take care of this. He loves us enough to take care of all of this. Jesus is weeping at the end of this passage. He is weeping because many of the people present could not see beyond this to this. They continued to see all the problems as out there. And they didn't recognize the problem with the foundation and what Jesus was doing to restore it. They missed it. And they missed him. And they missed the extravagant love that he was pouring out on them. And that made him weep. Palm Sunday is a time to rejoice in the fact that God saves. Hosanna, God saves. And he saves us not just from the presenting problems or all the problems that are out there. He also saves us from the problems that are in here, deep in our core. It's a time to celebrate that Jesus is king and he reigns. Not just out there and in public, but he's also meant to reign in here, in our core, in our deepest allegiances, and in our priorities, and in our strongest affections. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer this morning, and then just invite you to sit quietly while the band sings a song for us. So let's pray. God, I thank you that you do care about our problems and about every last thing that concerns us. And there is no crack too small that does not uh, get your attention and your involvement. And so I thank you for that tenderness and for that attention to detail and for your desire and ability to meet us in uh, the smallest of things, in the largest of things, in all the visible fractures. God, would you show us if there are places in our lives where we've envisioned a solution or we're reaching for a solution that is just not quite you, where we're grasping at things um, that are not quite you. If that's the case, uh, would you show us that this morning? And God, I thank you that you came to save us not only from the visible things, the identify, easily identifiable things, but you came to save us from the foundational rift and fracture. You were the only one who could do it, and you did it so gladly and so humbly and so extravagantly. Thank you. Teach us what it means for you to reign and be king, not just out there in public, but also in us, in our core. Help us to lean into, live into your rule and reign inside of us as well. We don't want to miss you. We don't want to miss what you're up to. We need you. We bless you. Amen.